Morning, everyone. My name's Sam, and I'm going to be bringing us the Bible reading. So if you've got a Bible, please um, turn to Psalm 19. If you've got one of the Bibles from up the back, um, it's on page 480, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warmed by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward." Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Tim. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm going to help us uh, think through Psalm a little, uh, Psalm 19, a little bit more. So keep it open in front of you, and we're going to begin uh, by praying uh, the words at the end of the psalm. So let's uh, bow our heads. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, our Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Uh, well, sometimes uh, the signs uh, aren't clear. Uh, Graham Anderson is a farmer in regional Queensland. This is a picture of him. Uh, his property is a, a lovely property that backs up onto a beautiful area called the Isla Gorge. It's one of those beautiful places. There's watercourses, there's trees, uh, there's a lovely public access area so people can enjoy this wonderful gorge. Uh, and that would be great if Google Maps actually took them to the public access area uh, instead of taking them uh, to his property. Uh, Over 200 tourist vehicles have gone down this goat track of a track that's on Graham's uh, property. Uh, They get to the end, they get near the gorge, they get stuck, and then he has had to go and try and uh, rescue them from that situation. It got so bad that he ended up having to make a sign of his own so that he could warn people. Uh, Trust me, not Google, Isla Gorge is 17.5 k's this way. 
Uh, people couldn't read this, the clearer sign. Yes, Google is telling them to go one way, uh, but also the fact that you are not on a proper road and they keep on being gates that say private property, they weren't reading the signs. At least Graham's travellers had a little bit more sense than a woman who was uh, reported in a Canadian paper a couple of years ago. She was so committed to her Google Maps and committed to not reading the signs of what she physically saw in front of her that she followed her map uh, down a boat launch and into a lake. Uh, and uh, she ended up having to be rescued from her vehicle as she was trying to get to somewhere. Uh, pay attention to the signs. Sometimes they are physical ones that you can have in your hands and sometimes they are the signs that we see with our eyes, the signs that we see in nature. Well, over summer we've been taking a little bit of a look at the different psalms that we find in the Bible. The book of Psalms contains 150 different songs and these songs have a lot of the theology and a lot of signs about who God is and signs about how we understand our world. Throughout the Psalms, we get insights into who God is, uh, who people are, how God relates to his creation. And we can also explore uh, ourselves as we see ourselves portrayed uh, through the Psalms. In the words of David, the sons of Korah and others, we see the the whole scope of the human uh, person, our emotions. We explore the highs and the lows of life and everything in between. So before we jump into Psalm 19, I just wanted to briefly say, uh, if you're a person that struggles to read their Bible every day, you think, I don't know where to start, and maybe you're a person that struggles to pray every day, the Psalms are a great way to get your Bible reading started. Uh, There's 150 of them, so you can say, I'm going to read a Psalm a day, and I'm going to pick one or two things that maybe I could pray from that Psalm. It's a great way to start your praying and your Bible reading in 2024. Uh, But today we're jumping into Psalm 19, and this is a psalm that is all about signs. That God speaks to us so that we can know uh, that he is good, we can enjoy his creation, but more specifically, uh, that we can see those signs uh, in his law about how we can make the most of the world that we live in. And so we're going to be looking at three points in our sermon today. Uh, The voice of the skies as God speaks to us in creation the voice of the law as God gives us signs for how we can make the most of our world, and then finally the voice of humanity in humble repentance and faith. Uh, But as we begin, uh, rather than me just yammering the whole time, we're going to watch a short video that gives us a sense of just how awesome and how massive God's creation is.
Let's see what uh, Psalm 19 begins with. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. We can look at the infinitely large universe that we're a part of, and it just boggles belief. Uh, We're sitting on a a giant blue-green ball, uh, and this giant blue-green ball is really just a speck next to that other big uh, burning ball that we spin around. And, of course, that burning ball that we call the sun, uh, we know that it is just the tiniest little speck on the outer spiral arm of the galaxy we call the Milky Way. As human beings, uh, in the last century, we've uh, flung out little satellites into space and we've been able to picture just some of the gargantuan things that we can't even see uh, in our night sky. Uh, here we have a picture coming up in just a second <coughs> of, uh, that came from the James Webb Space Telescope. <coughs> and this is a picture of a thing called the Pillars of Creation, named, incidentally, uh, after a, a term used by Charles Spurgeon in a sermon. And these pillars of creation is a dust cloud that is five light years wide. And it is just a tiny speck in an infinitely large universe, all of which that just screams out that God is a God of extravagant creativity. Things beyond our understanding throughout all of the universe and God, the creative God, is the one who made them, the things that we can see and the things that we will never see. Of course, if the psalmist had access to uh, microscopes like we do, he might not only talk about the expanse of God's creation, but he might say the microbes declare the glory of God. Uh, We can look out into a universe that is big beyond our understanding, but we can also look in and do the very same thing as we consider the intricacy of the universe that we're a part of. Do you ever stop and think about the human genome? These genes that make up the code that are you and me, the code is, uh, that is written in our chromosomes is three billion base pairs long. And all of this is packed into a strand of DNA that is 2.5 nanometers wide compared to the head of a pin, which is a million nanometers wide. Here you and I go about our day-to-day lives and we deal with the things that we can touch and feel and see. And yet we live in a universe that is infinitely bigger and infinitely more delicate and intricate than we could ever really understand. It's the kind of thing that we could talk about and muse on all day. And at the same time, it's the kind of thing that is hard to put into words, that it can leave us speechless. And so as we look again at the psalm, we see how the psalmist David feels this as well, and he captures it in what appears to be a bit of a contradiction. He says, verse 3, There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice isn't heard. And yet straight after that, he says, their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. That is, without speaking a word, God displays his character in the wonder and the glory of his creation. The Apostle Paul picks this up in the first chapter of Romans when he says, Uh, For his invisible attributes, that is, God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. If you go to Tim Brown's house, you can 
go to the boys' rooms and without them uttering a word, without them saying a thing, you can see some of their nature, some of their character, the things that they love, the things that they are about because they are displayed in their rooms and they speak of their character. And likewise, God doesn't need to open his mouth for us to see his glory and his majesty in the finely tuned and intricate world that we live in and the gargantuan universe that we can't even imagine in our heads. David tries to illustrate this with a a metaphor about the sun, how it uh, works and how good it is. In the heavens, he's pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running its course. It rises from one end of the heavens, it circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. When we look at the sun, not only can we see it, but we see everything by it. And we can rejoice in the fact that when we wake up in the morning, we know that the sun is going to rise again, uh, that it is going to go through its course and that we will see it set uh, at the end of the day. If we were going to put it into modern parlance, people might say something like, uh, the laws of nature have been written and they bring a beauty and dependability to our world. And these laws are kept day by day because uh, the one who wrote the laws, the lawgiver, it's God, the author of creation, the one who flung the stars into space, who wrote every base pair of DNA in our chromosomes, is the one who is responsible for the laws of nature that hold everything together. Without even a word being spoken, God's glory is declared throughout the universe. And we, specks of dust, on a world that is itself a speck of dust, are left to wonder how or why the God who is infinitely bigger than we can imagine is still the God who pays attention to us. This is what Psalm 8 says, isn't it? Why is God even mindful of us? And nevertheless, he does. God shows his glory without a word being spoken, and yet God does speak to his creation. And as we sit, minds boggling it at uh, how we make sense of a universe that's too much to comprehend, God speaks to his people uh, through his law so that we might know him and that from the very beginning we'd know that God has laid out what it is to be God's people, living in God's place and how we might live uh, under God's rule. Uh, Now, I'll be honest, for a lot of people, uh, this is a moment where they feel a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, It's one thing to have this cosmic picture of a God who is beyond creation, this creation that is just massive, and then to jump talking about the law, it it feels like something that's a a very different subject, and uh, uh, actually a number of commentators have said, oh, they wondered whether or not this was two different psalms that were kind of stuck together. But I think this psalm is a little bit like one of those 3D puzzles. You remember those from the 90s where you just need to sort of let your eyes unfocus for a second and when you come back together, you see the bigger picture. On one side, creation declares God's glory in the abstract. This is something that is beyond our understanding. It is big. It is cosmic. Its beauty and complexity speak of a God who's both beautiful and complex beyond our understanding. But as God speaks to his people and tells us how we might flourish in this world, God moves from the abstract, these big things, to the concrete. What does it actually mean to be part of God's creation, part of this beautiful thing, and how do we make the most of it? But it can feel a little bit weird, particularly if we fall into that trap of thinking that God's law is that thing that is all those thou shalt nots. 
If we're talking about God's law, what we're talking about is those things that tell us what we can and can't do. You know, there's that that uh, old saying that uh, everything good in life is either illegal, immoral or fattening. And uh, for a lot of people, they think that the Christians, the job, of, the job of the Christian is to tell people about those illegal, immoral and fattening things so that uh, they're the joy police. They have to make sure that we don't enjoy uh, the world that we're in. Uh, but I think Psalm 19 has a glorious and a different vision. And as we think about that in a, a big context, I want to start by actually by talking about a football team. Uh, last year, uh, even I, who am not a uh, round ball fan, got to watch the Matildas play in the Women's World Cup, uh, almost get uh, the flowers. They almost got the whole way. Uh, but it was a beautiful thing to see, uh, precision and planning and skill and expertise and value. Uh, last year, I also got to have another experience, and that was I got to see the under-sixes play at Jack Brabham Soccer Fields. Uh, during the, this time, during a, a couple of different games I walked past, uh, I saw a kid get uh, out of the soccer field, uh, dribble around some uh, parents while they were still playing, stop to pat a dog, and then bring the ball back into the field without ever, ever a whistle being blown. I saw two kids on competing teams uh, stop dribbling the ball and just give each other a hug. <laughs> I saw somebody with an open goal in front of them, but a, a muesli bar five metres to the left of him pick the muesli bar over the goal. And I also saw a kid who made a wise decision just like they did at the rugby school 150 years ago, and he realised, I can just pick this ball up and throw it in the goal, that'll do much better. Now, we love seeing the under-sixes the under sixes play soccer as well. But we also understand that if that is all soccer ever was, it would be a disappointing game and we wouldn't enjoy what we got to see with Australia's best women playing last year. Many of us love to watch football. We love to see strategy and athleticism and creativity on the, the pitch. But it all makes sense because there is a framework that determines how they actually go about the game. If you don't have the framework, you don't have the game, and it is disappointing. Some of the rules might be a little bit nebulous, and we struggle to understand them. I don't understand the offside rule in soccer still, and yet we know that it brings greater clarity and fairness to the game so people can enjoy it the way it's made to be built. The real freedom and joy of football is expressed not in 22 people doing whatever they want, but when two teams of 11 people play the game the way it was designed uh, and they follow those rules, they follow the framework. And you see how David is clear that this is true for God's world as well, uh, that God is just not saying, well, go out and do whatever you want, it will be right. But God is giving us a framework by which we can enjoy his world. Not just a list of thou shalt nots, uh, but a way that we can express uh, ourselves in a, uh, beautifully, that we can enjoy God's creation and we can do it in a way that is affirming to the world around us, but also affirming to the God who made us. And David lays out six different ways in verses 7 to 9 in which we can do this. We're going to have them up on the screen for us. Firstly, he says the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. Uh, this again, you know, with the soccer analogy, is, is simple. Uh, when we follow the instructions, uh, it is a good thing. We enjoy God's world the way that he made it uh, and uh, we can have fun. 
God's instructions are like a note from the author who wants to say, uh, this is how the game is played and this is what it means to enjoy it. Uh, But David continues, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Uh, One of the big uh, themes of Luke that we saw uh, last month, and we're going to join Luke again uh, next, uh, next month and continue in the story in Luke, is that God is a God who makes promises, but more importantly, God is a God who keeps promises. He keeps his word. We know that our human beings make all kinds of plans. We can make all kinds of promises, but we're not very dependable when it comes to keeping those promises. Uh, That great idea that you have at 18 to get a tattoo of your favourite cartoon character sounds like a brilliant idea. Uh, But you promised to do it, but thankfully at 28 you realise what a dumb idea it was and that you were so glad that you didn't. Uh, We can make plans, but we don't know things like what the interest rates are going to do. We don't know whether or not we'll be able to afford that holiday. Uh, We don't know if we're going to be able to keep the promises to hang out with somebody next Saturday because we don't know what is going to happen. Uh, We can say lots of things, but we deliver on so few of them. But God's testimony is trustworthy. God makes promises and he keeps them. And this is just one reason why the Old Testament is such a wonderful thing to read because we can see a story from the beginning of time about how God continues to keep his promises. He continues to deliver for his people. And so David says the Christian is made wise because we know what our eternal future holds because God tells us and God keeps his promises. Now, friends, you can be a fool in any other measure that the world might see. And maybe you feel a bit foolish because you don't understand how Netflix works or even how computers work. Maybe you find movie plots confusing. Maybe you don't understand the, the rules of soccer and that whole illustration was lost on you. But friends, if you put your trust in the God who has shown that he is trustworthy... David reminds us that you are really wise in a way that is eternally significant. The psalmist continues, The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. Speaking of precepts is speaking more of of precise rules that God gives us. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I knew that Jesus died for my sins and that meant that I needed to trust in him. Uh, But I also knew that I had a lot of rough edges that needed to be smoothed out. And as I've grown in my faith over the years, a part of that smoothing, it's a work that will continue until my dying day, is understanding that God's precepts for my life, God's rules are actually a good thing. Rather than a sense of obedience that comes out of duty, I just do what God says because he told me to. As a Christian, as I grow, I see that I have a desire to follow God because I know that his precepts are right and that they make my heart glad when I am God's person in God's world, living God's way. Statement four is a variation of the same thing. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. When we see God at work in our lives, when we see what it is to be part of God's creation and to be loved by the Lord, it lights our eyes up as we grow to be more like his son Jesus. In the final two statements, the psalmist wraps things up. He says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Again, if people have mixed feelings about the law, if they see it as thou shalt not kind of thing, then talking about the fear of the Lord can sound like an uncomfortable thing as well. 
In my 20s, I was part of a, a growth group that included a guy who was a pretty serious rock climber. I remember seeing some pictures of him, you know, 100 metres up, uh, some rocks in the, in the Blue Mountains. And I said to him one day, oh, you just must be fearless to be able to do that. It just it boggles my mind that you'd hang off gigantic rocks. And he said quite the opposite. And to be a good rock climber is to have a healthy fear of the cliff. Because if you don't respect it in the appropriate ways, you make bad decisions. When I go and climb, I realise that if I don't kind of connect in at the right spots, I could fall, and if I fall, I could die. When you have a healthy fear of the cliff, then you have a right relationship and you make good decisions. To have a right fear of God, a healthy fear, is to respect that he is the creator of the whole universe. He is the one that holds everything together. And to acknowledge him for who he is, Uh, is to understand the world rightly. But to uh, not acknowledge God for who he is is to risk falling out of relationship with the author of creation. And that means uh, falling out of relationship uh, for eternity. In conclusion number six, he says, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous because God is reliable and altogether righteous. So verse 10, they're more desirable than gold than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them and in keeping them there is an abundant reward. The voice of the skies speak when we see God's nature in creation. The voice of the law speaks when we see God reflected in the instructions he gives to us that we might enjoy his world the way he has built us to. And now God calls us to respond. But do you notice David's response? Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. Even when he has a right understanding of God's majesty and the beauty of God's word, David needs God's help when it comes to being ruled by his own willful sins. And then he needs forgiveness, not only for those willful sins that he might have committed, but also for those things that he is not aware of that he's doing. But David knows that he can come to the Lord and confidently ask for cleansing because God is a God who cares, who keeps his promises, and God loves his people who have repentance and faith. And here's where we step back and we see part of the big picture that gives a real depth and extra meaning to this psalm. And that's because David was a guy who knew all about sin. He is the one who had the affair with Bathsheba. David was the one who arranged the killing of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, so that maybe uh, he wouldn't get caught out. We see how David uh, failed uh, the the many wives that he had and that he had broken down relationships with his children. Uh, David is a guy who is full of the messiness that comes with sin And so he's a person that we can understand because we feel that messiness as well. So how could he be called a man who is after God's own heart when he has all of this messiness? Well, we see it here in the psalm. David was aware of his sinful nature and that meant that he came with repentance and faith in the God who loved him despite his messiness. Friends, how much more can we come to God confidently because we have that thing that David longed for. 
And that is the knowledge of the fact that God deals with our sins in the person and work of Jesus, who lived the sinless life that David longed for, who died on the cross for David's sins and for yours and mine, and who in rising to new life offers us new life when we put our trust and faith in him. Friends, God's word is good and God's world is good. He's given us a universe to be a part of and a world that we can enjoy in so many ways. And God's law is the framework by which we can enjoy it, the rules for the game so that we can experience it to the best, so that we might uh, love ourselves, love others and love the God who gives us all of these things. But as we consider that framework, as we consider God's law, maybe you're encouraged or, or maybe you're rebuked. I fall short of that law. I know the sins that I've done and the ways that I don't deserve a relationship with good. And yet with David, we can come to God and know that our sins, our intentional and unintentional ones, have been paid for on the cross. The law that God gives us convicts us of the fact that we are imperfect creatures. But his son is the one who fulfills the law and who writes a new law in our hearts. Let's pray that we might be able to follow this uh, this week and this year. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, Lord, we do thank you for the glory of your creation. Uh, We do thank you for the goodness of your law, that you show us how we might make the most of the world that we live in. And like David the psalmist, we recognise that we are people who fall short in this, And so we pray, Lord, that as David lays all of his faults at your feet, we can lay our faults at the foot of the cross. And knowing that you forgive us, that you love us and cleanse us, but also that you change us so that we might be more like your son Jesus day by day. And we pray for that in our lives this year. Amen.